Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres, narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Savoy. Thank you so much for being here. It's been just a real privilege for me to hear all these great stories from all these different people. And I hope you're all taking advantage of the subscribe option that you have on all the different platforms that the show is on. Uh, the show is on Apple, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and its home base, Podbean. So you have six different options to go ahead and subscribe. Uh, the show always needs likes, reviews, shares, Anything that you can uh, can possibly contribute would mean so much to both me and the show in general. So, so for this so for this week's episode, I'm going to take you back a little bit to the year 1998, and this was my second semester of my senior year in college. And at this point, I was at this great moment where I only had one required class that I needed to take. And that was, uh, that was my advanced studies in theater class. And I was going to take that the year before, but then I, the semester before, but then I had gotten a show. And so that class got bumped over to the second semester. So I had to take that. But that also meant that I had four more classes that I could take as electives and I could take whatever I wanted. And fortunately, uh, my advisor at the time, the late great Bill Bordeaux, um, was, a, was a real gem in working with me to get me the right kinds of classes. Um, he knew that this was my last semester, so let's open things up, let's have a lot of fun. And the classes that he advised me to take wound up being some of the most, um, one of the most, some of the most inspirational classes that I had taken in all of Marymount Manhattan College. Uh, one of them was ballroom dance, which was, which was a blast that opened the door to eventually me getting into West Coast Swing. Uh, there was children in television when you're being taught by the producer of Reading Rainbow. That's always the nice bonus. Um, you have writing for television, which was, um, which was working with, uh, with a great teacher and Susan Shapiro Barish and really getting to 
spre- uh, stretch myself out, you know, stretch my legs with uh, the different ideas that I had at that time. And then I just happened to see one class that really caught my eye, and that was announcing and voiceovers. And I immediately thought back to the time when I was a kid and really getting into, really getting into, vo- into voice acting, really enjoying it. Um, not doing it myself, but really just kind of studying all the, you know, the different great artists that have contributed to that field. And which I would eventually revisit in 2015 when I would get my, uh, when I would get my voice lessons done and get a demo and try to get myself out there. Um, but at this point, you know, like I realized that this was going to be a really good, uh, really good class. And boy, was I right, because not only was it a, a subject that I was really interested in, but the teacher was a gentleman named Fred Malamed. And I will admit that I did not know that name at the time. Um, but then all of a sudden, I got to speak with him and he got to share his experience with us. And we got to learn that he used a voice on CBS Sports. And all of a sudden, everything really just kind of opened up for me. And I, I just knew that this was going to be one of those great classes that was going to stick with me for a long, long time. And sure enough, it has, because here we are um, over 20 years later. And that teacher, that professor, Fred Malamed, is here. Uh, Fred is not only a, an accomplished vo- uh, voice actor, but it's also an actor on the screen. Uh, your Coen Brothers fans, you've seen him in A Serious Man. Um, I know I've seen him over a dozen times for the movie In a World. And uh, he is here to not only share his experiences with those, but also to talk about the voiceover world in general and also the different projects that he's working on right now. And it is such a thrill to have on this show, on Excelsior Journeys, Fred Malamed. Fred, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you, George. Thank you for that that, uh, lavish introduction. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, pleasure to connect with you again and to and to be able to talk with you and everybody else who's listening this is this is going to be great and i i did i do have to say that uh, um as i mentioned to fred right before we went on the air that i was you know kind of nervous about doing this interview because this this uh gentleman is the first one that i was going to be interviewing who had given me a grade in the past so it's <laughs> something that <laughs> so i i was uh that the that's uh, that's one thing that I just you know we'll be we'll be working on as we go, um, but we were we were talking very briefly before the show started about uh, some projects that you have that are about to that are either about to come out or are in the process of, of coming out. What's um what are your uh, latest works that uh, that we uh, that my listeners can expect to hear from you? Well, let's see. I have a bunch of things that will be coming out um, in the next year. I'm not sure when exactly. The the uh, pandemic has has caused some scheduling, some, some abrupt scheduling <laughs> changes of various things. Uh, but here's a couple of things I can mention. Um, I have some features coming out, feature films. Uh, one of them is a film, a comedy called Togetherish, mm. uh, which uh, I believe will be coming out uh, will be we'll have distribution in the the uh the early part either the latter part of this year or the early part of next year uh which stars ed helms and uh patty harrison uh and i play ed helms's dad in that and it's that story is about um a guy who a single father who Mm -hmm. decides that he wants to have a child 
Um, mm. So he hires somebody who's a surrogate mother to have the baby with, with whom he has no other uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. Kind of the, that's kind of the way that he envisions it. He just wants to have somebody to have a baby with, and that and that would be kind of the end of her her role in things. Mm. And then uh, when they actually become when when she actually becomes pregnant, uh, things change. <laughs> and I won't yeah. go into what the nature of the the changes are exactly. But Ed Helms uh, and uh, is my son, and Nora Dunn is my wife. So Nora Dunn is his mother, and I'm his father. Oh, and, fabulous! Fabulous. That's that so good. <laughs> um, uh, written by a wonderful young woman, well, young, young from my perspective, uh, <laughs> a young writer-director called Nicole Beckwith, really a talented, terrific person. I really enjoyed um, working with her. Nicole Beckwith, yeah. that name sounds so familiar. I, I, I know I know that boy. I know I know that name somewhere. I'm just... um, I have another one. Uh, also, uh, these are all things coming out in the next, you know, six months to, to a year. Um, I have another film, um, uh, animated feature called Rumble, which is the, the first um, animated feature coming out of the newly reorganized Paramount Animation Department. Oh, wow. Uh, which is um, a story about uh, uh, kind of a world where every town, instead of having a baseball or football team, has, a, has these huge giant wrestlers these kind of strange creatures that wrestle for each town. Uh, And uh, it stars uh, Terry Crews, Ben Schwartz, Will Arnett, Tony Danza, (laughs) myself, uh, Michael Buffer, if you know Michael, let's get ready to remember. Oh yeah. My friend. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, it takes place in this world where these towns have uh, wrestlers. So I'm the mayor of this rather um, lightweight town that can't afford to have uh, a particularly great wrestler. And we've invested a lot of money in um, the building of a kind of a huge arena. Mm. And the wrestler who was to wrestle for us turns out uh, to be not really interested in, 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 in doing his best. So we're left kind of in the lurch and we have to find a new a new wrestler to wrestle for the town. And there's a young, there's a famous coach who, who coaches these kind of creatures, but he passes away. So his daughter, who is a young woman who, in whom people don't have a lot of faith, uh, says, wait a second, I, I know I, I can do this. So she has to find a new wrestler for the town. And that's what that film is about. Um, that's called Rumble, and that will be opening uh, January of 2021. So January of, the, of next year. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, it was really fun. I, I, we're actually still working on it. I've been, we've been working on it kind of slowly, little by little. Um, it's interesting to work on an animated feature, a, you know, a, a, a long animated feature um, like that, because you see little snippets of it begin to come together. You know, when mm-hmm. I worked on other animated things that are usually series, um, uh, like Adventure Time, which I was on, um, mm-hmm. You don't see much. You see kind of animatics, if you know what they are, kind of little, oh, yeah. little yeah. very simple demos of things. But it's mostly just still pictures of you and another character to give you an idea of what they might look like. But mm-hmm. here, much of it is actually completed, even though it's, you know, animation is a very slow, arduous process. It's interesting to, do, to, to see that all come together. So I have that film uh, that will be opening in, in January. Then I have another film, uh, that's a horror film, uh, interesting sort of um, horror film called The Vigil, 
which takes place uh, in the very orthodox part of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and what it's about is um, in, among orthodox Jews, there's a tradition that once a person dies, the body cannot be left alone because the body is subject to um, habitation by sort of evil spirits. So there has to be someone willing to take a vigil to remain with the body to keep the evil spirits away. So in this film, uh, there's a young man who grows up Orthodox, an Orthodox Jew, but kind of, kind of loses faith in the religion and also in the practices of the religion and kind of decides to go his own way um, and has a kind of a hard time because he's to some degree excoriated from this Jewish community. Um, and then a rabbi who knew him from childhood says to him, listen, if you'd like to make some money, I know you're kind of struggling. We need someone to sit with this body of this aged man who died recently. Would you be willing to do that? You know, you can make four or $500. So the young man says, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So he does it. And, in, and he, he sits a vigil with this body and there's a visitation uh, by various kind of uh, various kinds of spirits, and he's not sure if they're one or they're many. Um, and it's kind of a, a Jewish um, um, uh, horror film, something in the tradition of um, The Exorcist. Mm. And I play his psychiatrist, with whom he he has a you know a, a kind of a uh, a difficult relationship, um, but I won't say more than that, but that's a kind of interesting Jewish horror film, uh, wow. which will be opening also soon. Um, let's see, I also have um, things that are currently running that people can see. Mm -hmm. I have a series on Netflix currently called Medical Police, um, which is uh, a comedy series. Um, you might know Children's Hospital. I don't know if you know that series. It's on Adult Swim. I'm familiar with it. I never got to like to really sit down and watch it um, at that at that time of Adult Swim. I had already kind of you were um, <laughs> you were already, you were you were a super adult by that time. Well, I, I was I, at that point. I was living with my wife and everything. I wasn't living in the apartment that I was before with a couple of my friends, which would have been an ideal time for me to really watch it. But I was also, I mean, at that point, I had already I had watched the previous eras of Adult Swim, so I was right. you know very steeped in Space Ghost, Coast to Coast, and Aqua Teen Hunger Force, and right. Rack Show, and all that good stuff. So, um, so there, there was this show, and uh, they came up with, a, when that show ended, uh, they came up with a new show called Medical Police, where the same doctors also are at the same time kind of secret agent policemen. <laughs> uh, strangely, a, a, we did this show about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, began working on it. Um, a strange virus begins to take over the world in our in this show, uh, and uh, well, what we, do you know? <laughs> exactly. And uh, we are charged with the responsibility of uh, ending, of finding, you know, the source of this virus, which it turns out it has a has a uh, a kind of a plot behind it, unlike real life. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's a comedy series, very absurdist comedy um, that's currently on uh, Netflix. I have another show also on Netflix currently um, called Lady Dynamite, 
which Ooh. stars uh, me and a wonderful comedian called Maria Bamford, who some of your uh, viewers yes. are familiar with. Yeah. So I, I we're the two leads well. in that. And I play her manager and kind of fast friend and help her navigate the vicissitudes of show business, even though she suffers from a very sort of crippling mental illness. That's what, that's also a really interesting, unusual, funny show. Uh, and then I won't go on forever, but I have another show currently running also on Apple TV uh, called The Morning Show. Which, yeah, okay. Uh, you know that show? That's, uh, I know that, of it, yeah, I've been wanting to see that. Steve Carell mm -hmm. and uh, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. Uh, a very interesting show about um, a morning show, much in the much in the spirit of Good Morning America, or that, that, you know those kind of shows. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has a male uh, anchor played uh, by Steve Carell, mm -hmm. who, uh, in the middle of the Me Too era, uh, is kind of outed for having, kind of throwing his weight around and having uh, various affairs with. Um, uh, assistance and being generally kind of, um, you know, using the power as position to get over on various women, particularly women that are uh, not in positions of power. And uh, he is kind of busted for this, as as many <laughs> as many <laughs> have been in, yeah. in this world. Um, and he uh, tries to kind of make a comeback. Uh, you know, as a reformed, uh, you know, uh, no good Nick, and I play his agent, uh, oh, nice. who has to um, <laughs> deal with the difficulties of his personality and also kind of keep him apprised of what, the way the real world is, since he kind of doesn't understand, you know, what the fuss is about. You know, he all he did mm -hmm. was, was uh, sleep with a few what he views as willing, uh, you know, production assistants and so on. <laughs> Anyway, um, so those, those those are a few things that I have that are coming out or that are, you know, will be out soon. I have some things also that haven't started yet, projects. Um, maybe I should maybe I should shut up and let you talk for a while. But I'm working on writing a project of my own that I've been working on for a long time, which I will talk about later if you'd like. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. Some other things, too, that, that uh, we just haven't started yet because of the... Um, the you know there's a kind of a general halt in show business because of the coronavirus but we'll, but hopefully uh those will be you know hopefully we will ha all of the all of the world will have a an answer for the coronavirus and things will um uh, will have some semblance of normalcy again i'm hoping i'm you know as everybody is um so but meanwhile i'm i'm here uh you know hunkered down with my wife and my two 17 year old twin boys in Los Angeles, kind of living our lives and uh, making, trying to make the best of it, like everybody else. That's fabulous. That's that's terrific. So the um, before we get to the uh, what I call the lightning bolt moment, just uh, just really quickly, um, are you able to all the different projects that you're working on? Um, obviously, the live action ones you have have to be on a set, but uh, for the animation ones, are you able to do those from home, or do you have to go to the to the recording studio? Outside no, of the fortunately, uh, the, the, anim the, the, the one animation thing that I've been working on steadily um, that I told you about, mm -hmm. um, I have been able to do from home. I have a, I have a uh, home studio, which is pretty good. So, uh, you know, that makes it easier. Although they have people that don't, they, to people that don't have home studios, they send out, a, it's interesting, they have a method now, they send out a suitcase 
and the suitcase oh, is yeah. delivered to your door. And mm -hmm. in the suitcase is a good mic and some kind of an interface that goes into a computer mm -hmm. and uh, some sort of software. Uh, and uh, you accomplish things, you know, pretty much. I think it's, I think that I, I think they use source connect or one of the other mm -hmm. real time internet for your readers that or listeners that don't know what source connect is source connect is a is a um a service that allows people to do audio uh, high quality audio over the internet without um the kind of disturbances you may hear us because we're doing this on zoom you may hear little moments where the audio sounds funny and crackles or kind of distorts so source connect there's a there's a algorithm using the packets where that doesn't happen um, using Source Connect. So it's a service you have to pay for that people who do audio from home studios can use to connect in real time with other studios. Like for example, if there are producers that want to listen to them and direct them, say in Chicago and they're in Los Angeles, they can go in real time and talk to each other. Oh, fabulous. That's, that, that's, that's one of those goals that I would love to have for, uh, for my own studio. Um, well, if you have a computer, you can subscribe to it. It's a pay service. All you need is a computer. And, you know, I'm sure you have a, a mic and, a, and, a, and some kind of interface, because I know you do recording of audiobooks. Yep. So uh, all you'd have to do is get this, um, this, uh, this service and you get, you get uh, some software that you download and then you pay a fee for the, for the service and that's it. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I have a whole uh, studio, you know, set up and everything in my little uh, walk-in closet. Got all the acoustic foam and everything set up here. Got the moving blankets, thankfully. Um, and uh, yeah, I got the Rode uh, NT1A microphone um, with the uh, uh, with the Focusrite uh, Scarlett interface. Mm -hmm. So it's been it's been good to me. It it has it has been very good to me, and thankfully uh, Audacity is free, so so I can mm -hmm. do all the recording and editing and stuff from there. I'll be doing the editing for the show on that as well. So, um, so let's get back to you and let's talk a little bit about what I call that lightning bolt moment. What um, can you? Was there like a moment that you can really kind of point to that made you say, "That's the direction I want to go in" when it comes to voice acting, performing? Um, in that in that sort of field, what was it that made you feel like the pull toward that? Well, you know, for me, voice acting was an expedient. I wound up doing voice acting a kind of as a as a uh, as a necessity because I had to make a living. I was I had trained uh, as a so called serious actor. I went to I went to college uh, and studied acting. Although I never. You know, it's funny. I acted in high school and college. I did a lot of acting. I went to Hampshire College where you could kind of do whatever you wanted. It was very unstructured. And I did a lot of acting in plays and a little bit in people's movies and a little bit of voiceover stuff. But I liked it, but I never considered it as I always kind of wanted to be a writer. I never really considered it as a profession, mm -hmm. um, although I did a lot more of it than I did of writing. Um, and then in my last year of Hampshire College, um, two women uh, came to Smith College, which was a close by college with, 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 with which we shared um, courses and you could be in plays there and stuff. And these two women, uh, Tina Packer and Kristen Linklater, uh, had started a company called Shakespeare and Company and had mm -hmm. a very interesting, unusual approach, at least in my experience to that point, towards acting and particularly towards acting classics. 
So I was very influenced by, by them, particularly Tina Packer, and uh, actually joined her company at the end of, at the, when I graduated from college uh, in 1978. For a, for a brief time. And that's when I started to think of myself really as a professional actor. Um, and then I went to Yale Drama School, which, was, which is a conservatory program only for people that are interested in, um, you know, making that their actual profession or teaching, but mostly people that were, want to make that their profession. But I didn't have this kind of lightning bolt that you're talking about. I mean, I, ha I had some experiences that were that were like that, but there wasn't one thing where made that made me go, oh, this is what I want to do, except it happened kind of slowly. Mm. Um, you know, and voice acting, as I say, was an expedient. After I got out of Yale, I went to a theater in Minneapolis for a year called the Guthrie, which is a, uh, a, re a large regional theater. And then I got a job on Broadway um, in the original American production of Amadeus. Oh, wow. And I was in that for a long time, first touring, first doing a bus and truck tour of that, and then on Broadway. And, you know, I, I began to have a horrible, horrible problem with stage fright. I mean, really crippling, uh, unbelievably intense stage fright. And I was in this terrible quandary because I thought, Jesus, I don't like this. <laughs> you know, here I went to <laughs> Yale Drama School and I have this Broadway gig and a lot of my friends would be, you know, dying to have a Broadway part and a you know, big Tony winning play and all that. And I don't like it. I really don't like doing this eight show week. And, it's, and, and I, I, I began to really become very, very unhappy. So when the play ended, I said, well, that's it. I don't want to set foot on stage anymore. That's all. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. Uh, and fortunately for me, I had an agent who had a lot of voiceover clients, a lot of, you know, powerful, well-known voiceover clients. So I said to him, listen, uh, you know, I think I want to try doing voiceovers. And this is, this is, we're talking about, this is 1983. Mm -hmm. So the whole, um, the whole kind of landscape of voiceovers and show business, but particularly the voiceover world was very different in these days, mm -hmm. those days. And I'll explain to you how, but so I said, you know, I'd like to, I think I'd like to try doing voiceovers. And he was not particularly encouraging. He said, you know, you have a nice sonorous voice, but they don't really want voices like that. They want voices that cut through that, uh, you know, I said, well, let's just try me out. So he did. And I was lucky. I got a few, you know, kind of big jobs early on. I got one of them was, Con my first big job was Conoco Oil, a big oil company. Mm -hmm. And not long after that, I got Mercedes-Benz. Nice. Those are both very big, uh, you know, kind of marquee accounts. Um, and then I spent about 20 years uh, doing almost only voiceovers. I would occasionally do a movie um, but I wouldn't audition really for things. Uh, you know, I had a couple of casting direct. I was kind of spoiled. I, in those days, um, if you were one of the 200 or so people that did 90% of the voiceover work, um, you could make a very good living and not work very hard. <laughs> um, uh, so that I was fortunate to be among those people. Um, and then I had a couple of casting directors who kind of liked me. One was a, a great casting director, a woman called Juliet Taylor, who uh, cast many, many films, but particularly worked with Woody Allen a lot. Mm. So I got, to, I got to know Woody, and I was in seven of his, his films. And 
then I had another another guy who liked me. Um, uh, and I would, you know, they would call and say, listen, uh, it's a psychiatrist. It's uh, six days on Woody's film. You want to do it? And I would say, yes, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or, and, and then I, I got some larger roles like that. There was a role in uh, a film with Cher called Suspect, mm. which was quite a significant role. Yeah. And uh, I got that that way. And But I, I still was not very um, uh, forceful about about acting i didn't you know I, it was a hobby for me in some in some respects although i trained to do it and i was really making my living uh, doing voiceovers this went on for a long time and then sometime around i guess around the time i met you mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of the 20th century yep <laughs> um, there was a kind of a uh a, a, um, a sea change in the voiceover world and they stopped wanting dramatic sounding voices, you know, James Earl Jonesy, uh, Don LaFontaine, LaFontaine kind of voices, yeah. but like mine, uh, and started wanting people that had more natural sounding voices, which I, of course I haven't had since I'm like seven years old. <laughs> so all of a sudden I found myself, and by this time, you know, I was, I was married, I had two children, I had a son with autism, I had a lot of responsibilities and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the uh, game changed. And I, after having been very established and doing very well for a long time, I was kind of out in the cold. I was part of the old guard. And that's, that is what sort of uh, precipitated this change back to acting, regular acting, as I've now, you know, been doing for around 20 years, uh, more or less. Um, but in both cases, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, uh, choose to do it. I was, I was, I was kind of forced to do it because the other thing that I was doing was no longer, I was no longer, uh, persona grata in the, in those right. <laughs> so I was, uh, you know, and, and, uh, let me say also about the voiceover world that it's changed so vastly. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's almost unrecognizable today, and not to discourage people that are interested in it, like anything else. But it's become so much more difficult um, because there's a proliferation of work that is non-union work. When I was doing it, uh, it was all union work. There was no significant non-union work done, mm -hmm. uh, and that changed over the last, I guess, 15 years or so. And now the vast majority of work that is done is done outside the aegis of the unions, which means that the rates are much lower. Uh, they don't contribute towards health insurance or towards retirement. Um, uses is not counted like it used to be. You know, you, you, use used to be a major part of the way you were paid for things. Um, it's become a much, much, it's not the great business that it once was. Mm. Um, that said, I think you should pursue anything that appeals to you, that interests you. But there were years there um, where uh, if you were part of the um, elite is not maybe the really right word, but uh, you were part of the fortunate people that had an ability in that world and whose ability was recognized, um, you know, it was a great, it was a great career and a great profession. Um, I never felt as artistically um, uh, gratified in it as I as I have being a regular actor, but uh, I managed to write and do other things and you know 
get some degree of gratification from it. I still view it as, as a kind of acting and always have thought of it that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I'm discouraged by the kind of landscape that, that, that exists now because there's this kind of cottage industry of people giving classes and, and, and seminars and, you know, agents and, and, and uh, you know, casting directors that give stuff on the side that they're not really supposed to do. Um, which has gotten bigger than the voiceover business itself, the secondary industry of of helping people, in quotes, um, mm -hmm. you know, get into it. And I, I think a lot of people have really, really lost the thread of what it's about in that, you know, you hear people talking about, well, how do I get an agent? What microphone do I buy? Should I go on uh, P2P sites? Should I pay a fee? Um, how do I... Uh, uh, keep my clients? How do I, how do I present myself on the internet? How do I get enough likes on my Facebook page? All of which is besides the point. Mm -hmm. What you have to ask yourself is, um, who is really good at this, in my opinion? When I listen to television or a recorded book or anything, who do I hear? And I think, wow, that person's, something about that person wants me, makes me want to hear more of what they have to say, is arresting, is interesting, is somehow, somehow distinguishes itself from the general din of what we hear all day long. And when you hear that person, you then have to ask yourself, okay, what is it about them? Is there anything that I can identify about them? What are they doing? What is it that they have that they're not doing on purpose? What about them makes them compelling? And then you have to work on becoming good at it. Yeah. The whole idea of working towards becoming good at something seems to have eluded a lot, a lot of people who actually, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's this idea of, you know, wow, I can stay home and be in my pajamas and not have to have a boss that's an asshole. And, you know, wow, I'll, you know, I'll have this thing of my own. Well, that's true of anything where you're your own boss. But yeah. being your own boss, being your own uh, proprietor, always means more work, longer hours. Um, you know, that's what it means. But the good, the good side is that you do what you want. And if you're successful at it, the payoff is great. But it's harder to be successful. And you must be, you must strive to be great. That's what it's about. You, you, we don't necessarily uh, achieve greatness with all that we do. But uh, there's a good reason to try. Yeah. But, you know, people wouldn't say, well, you know, I hear you're a surgeon and I hear you guys make a lot of money. So what do I need to get my surgeon's kit? Should I get some, some <laughs> sharp instrument? Well, you have to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and while it is true that you don't, that everybody doesn't need the kind of intense study that is necessary to become a doctor, um, it doesn't hurt <laughs> to study yeah. it that intensely. Well, it's commitment. Uh, it is also, you know, like showing commitment to your craft. Right. But what does that mean? Some people think commitment means, well, I'm committed to finding an agent. I'm committed to getting the right microphone. I'm committed to doing research in how to get people to hire me. And in fact, what you have to do is develop something of your own that's really good, and then people will come to you. Mm -hmm. If you try and make a good... TV show or movie or book or voiceover career by saying, well, what's selling? 
you're, you, you, you will never turn on, you will never turn anything really worthwhile. You have to do it by yeah. based on what your taste is and hope that others agree with your taste and trust that others will agree with your taste. Because in the end, all you have to sell is you. It's you. Why, if they're listening to 10,000 other people, which believe me, they are nowadays, mm -hmm. why are they going to want you? you ha there has to be something about you, about either the way you sound or the what you do with words or what it represents um, that makes them go, yeah. Now, it's confusing because we've had this kind of perfect storm in the last little while that I was saying where... Um, three things happened simultaneously. One thing was the technology became cheap enough became that, that home studios are now ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. I had a home studio in 1993. I was the first person, the second person I knew in all of voiceovers to have a home studio in New York, in New York City. Mm. And like yours, it was built into a, a walk-in closet. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, it, it, you know, and at the time, it was a very expensive and laborious proposition. I have a, I bought a, uh, a Neumann U87 microphone that I'm talking to you on right now that I've had for those 28 years wow. that cost back then $4,000. Um, I had to, I had to, ha I had to have, <laughs> get this, I needed enough space to record audio. So I had to have a rack unit that had 1.5 gigabytes of memory, which was considered incredibly large, 1.5 gigabytes of memory. That cost $3,000. Wow. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nowadays, if you want 1.5 gigabytes of memory, um, you can go to Staples. I have a flash drive. <laughs> yeah, you can get, go to Staples and get something in the dollar bin mm -hmm. that you can stick on the side of your computer, literally. Yeah. But in those days, that was thought, wow, 1.5 gigabytes, unbelievable. You'll never need that much room. Yeah. I thought, well, I'm doing audio. I'm going to record a lot. So, I, you know, anyway, it was expensive and it was, it was uh, clunky and you had to order these special phone lines. Uh, at the time, this was before ISDN. The, the, the previous incarnation was a thing called Switch 56, which mm -hmm. was buggy and you had, and you, and you had to have special equipment to get it and also you had to have the phone company come in and, and run these lines into your house which cost thousands i mean it was a big it was a huge undertaking anyway now it costs about to have a home studio that's reasonably good you could do it for probably a thousand dollars you know if you have mm -hmm. a if you're lucky to have a good location that's not noisy yeah, yeah. So instead of the, whatever it was, the $40,000 that I spent on mine, plus also, <laughs> um, it, it can be done from anywhere because it doesn't matter where you are. Mm -hmm. So that happened. At the same time, a lot of the work went non-union. And at the same time, the taste started to be towards, started to be, started to be towards, you know, regular sounding people who don't care too much you know, they, 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 the, the, the readings should sound, every, every generation has its own version of this where they're skeptical about advertising. Nobody wants to sound like advertising. Right. So how do you not sound like advertising? Well, in some, in early, in my generation, it was done by, instead of, instead of sounding like Crazy Eddie, it was like talking <laughs> in a normal voice. 
but the voice talking in a normal voice still had some quality that made it special, made it different from a lot of people's voices that you might talk to casually. Mm-hmm. But you, and you know, people like Norman Rose and um, Paul Fries and Joyce Gordon uh, became, you know, the big stars uh, 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 of that world. Um, then later it became that you shouldn't sound at all special. You should just sound like a regular person, nothing at all unusual about the way you sounded. And in general, entertainment, and in particularly television, has had this kind of de-evolution mm. where um, <laughs> when I was a kid, if you turned on Tonight Show, uh, yeah. you know, in the Jack Parr era, mm-hmm. So you'd see people coming from Broadway. They would come over from their Broadway gig or wherever, you know, their nightclubs, and they'd be wearing evening clothes. They'd be wearing, you know, black ties and tuxedos, and you know, they oh, look yeah. like Dean Martin, and they have cocktails. Was, so we the, so we went through that. Then the then you know it got kind of looser in the Johnny Carson era, and then and comments started in the David Letterman era when you know we were making fun of show business, rightly, you know, for all of its silliness. And then we got to the Jay Leno area, where the idea was, well, we're stupid too. We don't know anything you don't know. Right. It used to be that television was on radio, even in the radio. We have something special, and we're going to show all you hayseeds what's possible in life. All you listeners, wherever you are, we're going to show you something better in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually it devolved to, hey, we're all just idiots. (laughs) <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, why do people like to watch the Kardashians? Well, they watch them and they think, God, those guys are just dumb. Mm-hmm. Those guys are really yeah. stupid. And, and they're rich. They've they're, they're got millions and millions of dollars. I, I'm smarter than they are. And they're super rich. So you can enjoy the fact that they're dopes. And yet, they're so lucky. They have all this money. <laughs> so that's that's the way television is to is is now. It's like, hey, we don't. Or actually, it's actually changed. It's gone back a little bit the other way. But for a long time, television loves was about like, hey, um, we don't know anything. You don't know. It's all we're all just we're all just, let's let's enjoy being stupid. You know, let's what there's nothing important or really serious. You know, it's all just it's all just entertainment. Yeah, and. And we've also gotten into this world where, as part of this, part of the part of the the tyranny of democracy is social media. Mm-hmm. What by that I mean, people now believe that there's no such thing as an informed opinion. If you say the coronavirus, if the New York Times comes out and says the coronavirus, um, you know, is really dangerous and you should wear a mask, and somebody puts on a Facebook page an article from some, some uh, internet publication saying uh, Dr. Fauci was responsible along with, um, uh, I, I don't know, the guy from Microsoft with Bill Gates. Dr. Oh, Bill Fauci Gates, and yeah. Bill Gates yep. both cooked this virus up in a lab in China so that you would have to wear a mask so that Donald Trump won't get elected. Mm-hmm. People say, well, yeah. well that's, I, that's my opinion. So that's just as good as the New York Times opinion. There's no such thing. It's all just opinions, man. Uh, n- nobody knows any better than anybody else. 
So that's yes. the irony that we're living under today is this idea that there's no such thing as an informed opinion, education and intellectual um, uh, muscle don't mean anything. <laughs> you know, right. We, so anyway, here the lesson endeth. I'm going to stop my rant now, but, <laughs> but um, so I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean because, like, I mean, there's there's so many so many posts that I've seen from so many different people on social media that uh, that can that insist on saying, you know, you have to you have to form your own opinion. You have to do your own research. You have to go and ask questions, man, because they're hiding something. Now, excuse me while I share this meme, <laughs> and like that's there, and all of a sudden, like somebody just put together a meme of saying that, you know, like Fauci and Bill Gates created the virus. <laughs> yes. and, you know, and then they go ahead and put that out there. You know, like while they're saying, do your research, and then they just hit share. Like that's not exactly doing your research. Well, also <laughs> research, what does research mean? Does yeah. research mean that if you find something published, it means it's true? That, that right. People don't realize that, I mean, I keep mentioning the New York Times, not that the New York Times is so great anymore, but I mean, certain publications vet what they print. In other words, they make sure before they print it that they can prove it. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. the same thing as I have a suspicion or don't you know that it's all, don't you know that the Rothschilds or somebody is all controlling this? That we, A lot of people would like to believe that all the misfortunes in their lives and in the life of the world in general are controlled by a secret cabal somewhere because it's less frightening than believing yeah. that things just happen that we can't control that stuff is just we're just out there in the big universe with a lot of you know i think a lot of people myself included felt a little shocked with all of our advanced science that something like this virus could uh decimate uh, so much of the world as it's doing um mm -hmm. you know we, we don't we have stuff in place to, you know, well, apparently not. We had some things in place, but a lot of things got kind of put aside. And anyway, my point is just that um, we live in this world now where um, all opinions are equal, and therefore we are subject to people who say, well, I don't have to inoculate my children. You know, it's my choice. Mm -hmm. I don't have to. And people don't realize that there's a whole history of that way of thinking. You know, when compulsory education was mandated, when people had to go to school, mm -hmm. billions of people said, wait a second, they're my kids. They don't have to go to school if I don't want them to go to school. I want my son to help on the farm. I need his help. You have no right to tell me what to do with my son. You don't, you don't have the right to tell me he needs an education. I say he needs to work on the farm, be a farmer like me. Mm -hmm. That went on, you know, yeah. for a long time. Um, so things that we now accept as completely reasonable, mm -hmm. um, you know, like other countries accept, uh, universal healthcare as being, you know, something that just like compulsory education that everyone is entitled to logically an easy, uh, assumption in other countries. Mm -hmm. We haven't had that here. So people are going, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? I, I, you know, that, that's not, I don't have to do that. I, I have people in my neighborhood where I live, the supposedly left-leaning <laughs> West Coast, <laughs> running around having anti-mask, uh, like demonst sit-ins, demonstrations. Mm -hmm. uh, now they're not doing it so much anymore because one in 14 people <laughs> has, been, <laughs> has got coronavirus. 
So it's pretty so, amazing when, when you think about that, you know, how all of a sudden just like reality finds a way to, you know, kind of interfere with, with everyone's plans. Well, but the whole idea is you don't want to learn every lesson the hard way. Yeah. I mean, I've read, I've read, I've read so many things of people saying, uh, I made a mistake. I wish I hadn't done this. You don't mm -hmm. want to be one of those people if you can help. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, Absolutely. Uh, so uh, this is all a, kind of a long way around, but television uh, did change. And that also affected my voiceover career because um, big voices, dramatic voices suddenly became like, oh, that's, that's the old way of doing things. So that, mm -hmm. that forced me back uh, into becoming uh, a, a regular actor again, which initially I was not, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it, but I didn't want to subject myself to the cold rain of um, having to audition and be judged by people and all that stuff. And eventually I, I you know, I was lucky. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've got this whole other end of my, this whole other, you know, chapter, second kind of act of my career for which I'm extremely grateful, but I never would have bet on it in a million years. It just happened. Yeah. Yeah. So um, speaking of around the time that we, that you and I met, that was um, my last semester over in college in spring of, of 1998. Uh, was that time, was that the, uh, was that your first teaching gig? Have you been doing that beforehand um, while you were still doing, uh, doing voiceover or was it something that you wanted to, try out and see how, how it was going? Um, I had taught a little bit when I was in graduate school, uh, which was 78 to 81. I had taught a little bit at Yale and I had taught at, there's a famous summer camp called Stage Door Manor where, where a lot of famous actors went as kids. And I taught there, but I had never taught um, uh, other than at Yale as a grad student, I'd never taught in a university setting. And I had a friend who was a, I, I used to do a lot of work for the USA network. I did mm -hmm. all the promos for their, all their, their, their self-made shows. They had, a, they used to produce their own movies, world USA, world premiere movies. And I did all the promos for all them and all their, all their self-produced shows. So I had a friend who was a uh, producer um, and uh, uh, he was a professor I think he was, I don't know if he was an adjunct professor or a regular professor. I think maybe he was a regular professor mm -hmm. also at Marymount. Ah. Uh, and uh, I had grown up right around the corner. I grew up on 72nd Street between 2nd and 3rd. So I knew Marymount yep. and I was familiar with it and all that. And so he said to me, listen, um, we want to do a course on voiceovers, you know, as part of the acting program. Would you be interested in, in, uh, in doing it? And I said, yes, I would like to do it. But it so happened. That, that, that in January of 98, mm -hmm. uh, the Nagano Olympics, uh, uh, the Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan took place. Yes. And yeah. I was already working for CBS and they had hired me to be the voice of the Olympics in Nagano. Oh, wow. So um, I, that was, you know, in the, the voiceover world at the time, that was the biggest thing you could get. That was, you know, the World Series, the Super Bowl, that was it. That was the biggest thing there was, the Olympics. Yeah. So I, I had to go to Japan to do it. So I went to Japan for about uh, five, five or six weeks, uh, January and the beginning of February of, nine, of 98. So I actually was late coming to this, uh, coming to teaching at Marymount. And I had another guy uh, fill in for me initially in the first few classes 
but then once the once the Olympics were over, I came in and started. And um, you know, I I approached it as you may remember uh, as a as a form of acting with a subtextual yeah. kind of um, orientation towards it, which is still the way I think of it. Mm -hmm. I still I still remember um, we had an assignment. I'll, I'll never forget this either because like we had an assignment where we had to basically just pick a a piece of a piece of copy, you know, like from whatever form we wanted and we would come in, we would perform it. And I picked the trailer for the 97 movie Spawn. Mm -hmm. And not only did, not only was I, you know, like, was I really into it just because I thought it was a really cool trailer. Uh, little did I know the movie itself would be kind of disappointing. Um, but the, um, but the trailer was done by Peter Cullen, one of my personal heroes. Uh -huh. So it was, so being able to work with you on that copy, that's one of those things you just like, you, you don't forget when, when you had, when, uh, when you have that kind of experience. So it's something that I always, always held on to um, after all these years. I'm glad, I'm glad it, I'm glad it, uh, you know, it was, it stuck in your mind and obviously, um, you know, meant something to you. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I, my kind of, take on this stuff is that you can be an artist at anything. You can be an artist, you know, at being a stripper. You can be an artist at being a chef. You can be an artist at being anything. And, and uh, I think a voiceover artist is an artist. I mean, if you look at it the way that I look at it and then, and you should, you should take it both, both with that level of seriousness and with that level of freedom, you know, mm -hmm. that you, that you can interpret things. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the, the marriage in show business between art and commerce is always a kind of a, it's a kind of a shotgun. <laughs> way. <Yeah. It's, laughs> they make uh, strange bedfellows. <laughs> right. But that, but the, it's always been that way. So yeah. you have to kind of, you have to kind of both deal with the exigencies of the commercial world and also try and give it whatever you can artistically that is, you know, that's right for it. And that's right for you. Mm -hmm. um, so the um, so during that time you had uh, you had mentioned during uh, at the beginning of the class and everything that you were working with CBS Sports, mm -hmm. and uh, in doing some in doing some research before the uh, be um, before our interview this week, I saw that uh, that you had worked a Super Bowl. Um, yeah. Do you do you remember which one that was? Uh, Super Bowl thirty five two thousand and one. Ah. Oh yeah, that's of course the one that I that you know that makes me cringe because that was uh, that was uh, Ravens Giants and the Giants had no chance at all in that. One. Yeah, it was <laughs> a blowout was... game. I remember that, but I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah, <laughs> which was a shame because the Giants had won the uh, the championship game to get there forty-one to nothing. So it seemed like it was going to be going to be much more competitive than it was. But uh, yeah, that that one broke my heart. <laughs> uh. um, Oh yeah, but that's you know that's just me. So, um, um, so when you made this transition from uh, from voice work into acting, mm -hmm. uh, what was uh, you you said before that you had worked with Woody Allen, and I know you know like you had also worked with the Coen Brothers. No, um, the Coen Brothers. The Coen Brothers was 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 at what happened was. Um, <laughs> So I, I, most of the time that I was doing voiceover work and particularly when I was, you know, successful at it, I was single. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any real responsibilities other than paying back my college loans, which I did in one year. I had wow. one really good year and I paid, well, I was, you know, 
don't forget college was a lot less in those days. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, I paid back my college and grad school loans. And then, and you know, I lived by myself. I had an apartment and I had a car. And other than that, I didn't have any real, uh, you know, responsibilities. And I was making for, at the time what was very good money for, especially for a single person. This went on for a long time. And then in 1999, I got married. Mm -hmm. And uh, right about then things started to, well, it wasn't actually, it wasn't until, I'd say, I'd say around 2000, CBS ended for me in 2003, I think. And that was kind of like the end of my, you know, the time that I was a real big guy in voiceovers, you know, real titan in voiceovers. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, one of our sons was diagnosed with autism. So we, and we couldn't get services in New York City because there was this avalanche of cases that happened. Mm -hmm. And we had a country house in Montauk out in Long Island. And our, we had a pediatrician out there and she said, listen, you know, there's a great school out, out here for both typical kids and kids uh, with special needs. Uh, and I'm on the board of it. This is our pediatrician. She said, maybe you'd like to go check it out. It was mm -hmm. called the Child Development Center of the Hamptons. So we went and checked it out and we really liked it. And our kids were so young at that time that we needed, they were, they were long before school age. They were like not even two yet. So um, in order to get the services that we needed, we moved full time to Montauk. So we moved out to Montauk and we lived there for almost 10 years. And both of our kids really thrived out there. And, but I wasn't making any money. And, you know, it was it, for the first few years, it was really scary. And, and I was really going broke. And, you know, by this time we had two cars and we had two houses and, you know, there were, <laughs> the nut was very high. Yeah. Um, so uh, it became rather desperate. And I had a friend and he said to me, listen, if you didn't have to worry about money, what would you like to do? You know, if you could do anything you want. And I said, well, I think I'd like to go back to acting and writing like I did when I was younger, but it's such a crapshoot. You know, I don't, I'm worried about it. He said, well, listen, you have about a year's worth of money before you have to like sell your house or something. Mm -hmm. So why don't you just try it? So I did to no great success. Initially I was, you know, I would, I would be on like uh, you know, law and order, like every other person who ever worked at Bloomingdale's <laughs> in New York. Yeah. Uh, and then um, one day I was sitting at home with my wife and the phone rang and uh, she, she answered it and she said, do you know somebody called Joel Cohen? Oh. And I know an accountant called Joel Cohen. <laughs> but I, said, I said to her, you mean the accountant Joel Cohen or Joel Cohen, Joel and Ethan Cohen? And I knew the Cohen brothers a little bit mm -hmm. because I had gone to school with uh, Fran McDormand and John Turturro and some other, and wow. I knew John Goodman, you know, some people from their kind of retinue. Mm -hmm. But I had, and I had auditioned for Barton Fink, but I didn't get really. Part. Yeah, I auditioned oh, wow. for the role of the movie studio executive, the uh, Jack Lipnick, that part. Oh yeah, yeah. The guy who the, got Michael it. was it Michael Lerner? Oh, right, Michael yeah. Lerner got it. It was wonderful, and he was he he was nominated for an Oscar. He was terrific. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I placed. I came in second, <laughs> but I was also much younger than he was, and so on. Anyway. So uh, Joel Cohen gets on the phone. I talked to him and he says, listen, uh, you know, I was looking at some footage uh, for another film and I saw you in this footage and um, we're working on this film now called A Serious Man. We're trying to cast it. 
And there's a part in there. It's 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 a it's a part that I just I have a feeling you'd be really good at. Are you are in this role? Are you interested? And I was, you know, I hadn't worked in a while. I was like, <laughs> uh, let me check my book. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I went into New York. Opening right there. <laughs> right. I went into the city and I met with them and talked to them about it. And they said, well, we definitely want you to do it. We're not going to see anybody else for it. You know, we definitely want you as this character, Cy Abelman. But the only problem is we don't know when we're going to get to it because we're working on a bunch of movies kind of simultaneously. And one of them was Burn After Reading. And Burn After Reading is a kind of star-studded movie. It's George Clooney and Brad Pitt and so on. And so we have to do it based on uh, the availability of the, of the people. So as it turned out, they did make uh, Burn After Reading first. So I, we, I wound up really being broke by the time. <laughs> and I, I, you know, like a year passed after we had that meeting and I thought, oh shit, this is gonna never happen. This is one of those show business things where you know you get this great opportunity and for some reason it just falls apart. This mm -hmm. is a very common story in show business. Oh yeah. But no, after after about a, over a year, they finally said, okay, we're gonna make it. So I went to Minneapolis, we shot at Minneapolis and I had a great time making it, really enjoyed making it, really enjoyed them and Michael Stuhlbarg and Richard Kind and Sari Lennick and all of George Weiner, all the people that were in it. And um, I had to wait another year, of course, for it to come out because it takes about a year to do the, the, the post on, a, on most movies, you know, do all the mm -hmm. editing and mixing and music and everything else that has to be done. Oh yeah. So it took about, we, we made it in September, October, November of 19, of 2008. Mm-hmm. And then it came out towards the beginning of 2009 and it was in the Oscars in 2010. It was nominated for two Oscars. And I, and I wound up uh, on this Oscar shortlist for it. Uh, I also won an independent spirit award for it and another award. Uh, uh, so it, at the age of whatever I was at that time, 52 or whatever I was, um, you know, it suddenly put me on the map uh, as an actor again, as a regular nice. actor. Yeah, which was wonderful, but mm -hmm. uh, as I say, a completely uh, not something I would have bet on in a million years. But it rekindled my love for acting, my joy in acting, and it's and it's been that way ever since. That's now, uh, you know, over ten years ago. It's whatever it is, twelve years ago, and it's been you know that these last twelve years have been great acting, uh, acting wise, and in other ways too. And it's been and it, no better way to you know rekindle that sort of passion than by working with the Coen brothers. You know, like what was it like working with them? Well, it was great. I mean, it, it, it was a little surprising. Actually, it was more than a little surprising because, you know, their films are so, um, they're so precise. They're so beautifully crafted. They're so, everything about them is so conscious. Yeah. Well, con that I was really su surprised that as far as performance goes, they give you very little. Mm-hmm they give you in the script a very fully realized world in which the, the characters and the story take place that you can appreciate from what they've written. You can understand them and they write mm -hmm. so beautifully. But yeah. then when you actually get there on the set, uh, you know, they, they spend a long time casting, they cast people that they trust. And so they give you a lot of freedom about the way you interpret the part. Um, and, 
they like you to stick very specifically to the words that they write. They don't, you don't do a lot of improvising as you do on some people's um, movies. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, but as far as what you do as an actor, uh, they kind of let you run, which is really the way the best directors work. The, the really best directors, um, in my estimation, create a situation and in a world that you kind of understand and they give you a sense of confidence and then you, 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 know, my, you do your work as an actor. That is, you decide why things happen, why the character is the way he is. You know, when you, when you read a, an amateurish screenplay, it gives you a lot of direction about how the character is and why he is the way he is and what he looks like at each moment and what he's feeling. When you read the screenplays that are written by, in my view, the better writers, mm -hmm. you see what happens as a result of the way the characters act, both the dialogue, what they say, and what they do. But you're left free to interpret how a character is as, as, in, as part of your work as an actor. You know, I've had people say to me, oh, you'll love this guy. He's an actor's director. Meaning, you know, he really gets in there with you, with the character, with the creation of the character. I don't want that. Right. I, I want a director who, particularly a writer-director, you know, writer-directors are, you know, the ones that are good are great. Yeah. Um, uh, I like a director who writes something that's great, if, you know, that certainly <laughs> makes my life a lot more joyful and a lot greater. And then, um, you know, is expert at putting what he wants on the screen and essentially lets me do interpret as I, as I want. Now that doesn't mean that I, you know, he can't steer me right if I go wrong or, right. you know, can help me if I'm having trouble, but the best directors help you in a way that is, they have this gift for just saying a little bit that opens up the floodgates. I'll give you an example. I did a film uh, long ago with Cher um, called Suspect. Mm -hmm. And in that film, uh, uh, Cher plays a, uh, um, a, an advocate for uh, um, people that have no money, a, a, an attorney, like a legal aid attorney for people that are indigent or poor. Mm -hmm. And in the film, um, Liam Neeson is a homeless Vietnam veteran who is accused of murdering somebody. So mm -hmm. Cher is tasked with the responsibility of defending him in court. And I play Cher's boss, who is the head of the legal aid, uh, you know, office in Washington, D.C., where the film takes place. Mm -hmm. And this character that I was playing is um, like extremely long suffering. Like he rarely wins. He's but he's a he's a true believer. He just kind of like he doesn't he just keeps his head down and keeps plodding through, even though things often happen that it would be discouraging to regular people, you know, right. because he's defending murderers. They're usually guilty. A lot of times they run away, they skip bail. They don't, they don't meet their responsibilities, all that stuff. So I was, so the director um, of that film um, was an English director, a uh, wonderful director, Peter Yates. Oh, wonderful. okay. Yeah. 
written by Eric Roth, great writer too. Oh, wow. Uh, starring Cher, Dennis Quaid, Liam Neeson, uh, really good, uh, interesting cast, John Mahoney, Joe Mantegna, Phil yeah. Bosco. Um, so I said, and, and I was, you know, still young in my acting career. This is 1986 we were making this. Mm-hmm. I said to um, Peter Yates, you know, I'm not, I, I, I kind of don't understand this guy. I mean, he's, how does he just, how does he keep, I don't understand why he keeps lining up to be for this punishment, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he said, he said, I think at home, this guy has a lot of children running around. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> That's all he said. Well, now, what did he mean by that? Well, there are a couple of different things that he could mean by that. I took it to mean two things in particular. One, that life around the house was difficult, <laughs> difficult for him. <laughs> so therefore, he didn't mind spending long hours defending people at the office and researching their cases and so on. And the other thing I took, I got, I got from his description of this guy's life off camera Mm-hmm. was that he has a kind of, t- you know, you ha- if you have children, especially more than one, I have twins, you have to learn a kind of patience. You have to learn to be uh, tolerant. Mm-hmm. Children, the nature of children is they can't put their needs off. You know, you as an adult, you can postpone your needs sometimes, or you should, you know. Children mm-hmm. can't. They need you to do things. You have to be strong when you don't feel like it. You have to do stuff when you don't feel like it. That's what being a parent is about. Right. You, to get plenty to, you get to do plenty of stuff you do feel like, too. It's joyful. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of times when you just, have to, you just have to suck it up because that's what it means. You, you're an adult. And so that's what I got. And that's the way. And I understood that about this character. This character named mm-hmm. Morty was right. that he, he sucks it up because they're like his children. Mm. He believes in them. Yeah even when they give him evidence frequently that they don't, that they're not worthy of his, of his trust. Right. It's kind of abiding faith. So this great director, Peter Yates just said this little thing to me that has no bearing on anything you see in the movie. It's never mentioned. It never says, Oh, I got to go home to my kids or anything. He just Mm -hmm. said this one little thing. And I thought, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the best directors, from my perspective, now people are different about this, but I like it when they're able to help you if you need help, uh, but they let you run. I was at, I was at, I, we, in 2010, my wife and I went to the Independent Spirit Awards, uh, and I was lucky enough to win an Independent Spirit Award, uh, Robert Altman Award, and um, I was talking backstage with Robert Duvall, was a big hero of mine. You know, I love him. I think he's a great actor. And he was very friendly and nice to me. He had seen the movie and he was very complimentary about it and stuff and really made me feel good. And he said, you know, he said, I've never worked with the Coens. He said, I've always, I've always liked their stuff, but I've never worked with them. He said, what are they like? And I told him what I told you. And he said, oh, they leave you alone. Great. That's just what I like to hear. They leave you alone, right? <laughs> that's what, it's funny. That's what, um, that's what Robert Duvall said about George Lucas since yeah. they had worked together on THX 1138. He actually, um, one of my favorite uh, little documentaries, I'm, I'm a sucker for um, special features on DVDs and the THX 1138 has this wonderful documentary about the early days of Zotrope, of uh, American Zotrope. Mm-hmm. And Robert has a really quick thing when he, when he says like uh, people come up, came up to him and asked him, 
what George Lucas is like. And he said, well, he leaves you alone. And so same sort of, same sort of thing. That's, that's amazing that he's the one that, that you were talking to that immediately clicked in my head. I was like, oh, I know that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think with some actors, you know, certain kinds of actors, Robert Duvall certainly being one of them, um, they're often given more help in quotes than they need or than they want. So he, he's appreciative of the directors who do their job, do their thing and let him do his thing. And I'm sort of the same way. Yeah. So the, um, so I would definitely be remiss if I didn't mention this before, but uh, like I said, um, during the introduction, I must've watched uh, the movie in a world about like a dozen times um, for some, there's something, there's something really pleasant and pleasant and enjoyable about it that really just makes me gravitate toward it, especially probably just because it's all about a field in which I would love to be in. Um, and your character, Sam Soto, um, is very unlike you, <laughs> you know, for the, the time that I've, that I've known you and everything. And um, it's, it's always been, you've, you've been nothing but, you know, but giving, you know, to me and very generous with your time and especially now. Um, so, with that kind of character, what was it like? Was there, were you able to kind of like tap into, um, since this, this field and everything is, is so much of what you, you have experience in, was there any, were there any different people that you had to tap into? Did you just have to like, just, you know, just let it fly and just play to the hilt, the sort of caricature like, you know, like character? What was, uh, what was it like doing, being a part of this movie? Well, first of all, it was a great joy to be part of it. Uh, Lake Bell, who wrote and directed and starred in that movie, who is my, my dear friend, mm -hmm. um, uh, that's her first feature that she ever made, which is amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, the writing was so good in it, and she was so um, uh, poised as a director, exactly the thing that I was just talking about with the Coen brothers. Um, you know, she was, she was not, she had a kind of confidence um, which very rare in anybody, but in a first-time director, that's really you know something. And she was, uh, she was great to work with. And all you know, I, I just reading it. I, it's funny. She, what happened with that was, um, she didn't actually know that I had this long career of doing voiceovers. She just, she just kind of thought she had seen me in in A Serious Man, and she thought that I would be, uh, you know, good as this character. Oh wow! And, it, and because of the way my voice was, it was plausible mm -hmm. that I could be a voiceover guy. Um, and I just read it, and I and I really liked it. And uh, you know, I don't. Uh, you know, it's a great w one of the one of the real pleasures of being an actor is that you get to experience things or act in ways that in your ordinary life uh, you <laughs> you would be <laughs> unlikely or. Uh, you know, uh, um, inhibited or, you know, from, from, from uh, acting like. Um, yeah. I, I didn't find, I, I, I've been surrounded all my life with people um, whose selfishness, uh, you know, is, is there, but is masked in this kind of, uh, you know, don't, like, like Cy Abelman, you know, uh, I only want what's best for you, sweetheart, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I I didn't find, I mean I I enjoyed I really enjoyed playing that character, um, and uh, you know it's it, if you're an actor uh, 
you know, exploring the parts of you um, that are not necessarily um, the flattering parts is part of the joy of it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a, I didn't have a problem uh, as a, as a task to, you know, to, to explore this guy who was selfish and narcissistic and all that stuff. And I think um, while I appreciate the kind things you said about me, uh, the, the tendencies towards, towards uh, narcissism and towards, you know, wanting things my way and so on, are not something that's so far removed from me that I couldn't relate. <laughs> Well, I, um, when, uh, when Lake was working with you, like before production started, um, once she was made aware of it, did she reach out to you for like, uh, any sort of like consulting or anything about this world in general? No, she knew it pretty well herself. What had happened was Lake, um, went to school to drama school in England. Mm -hmm. She went to uh, a famous uh, drama school in London. And then she came back to the United States. She had, she, she, uh, her father, she has a very interesting background, interesting life, like um, her father uh, is a well-known guy in the world of car racing. And really? he, yeah, owned some, sp- in fact, she wrote a column. I don't know if she still does it, but she used to write a, a car. It's very knowledgeable about high performance cars. And she wrote a column in the Hollywood Reporter about, about cars for years. Um, uh, anyway, um, but her father uh, is, in certain respects, I don't think he's quite as um, uh, transparent as um, uh, Sam Soto, but I think she, he, there, was some, there was some some things that she kind of uh, borrowed from her own personal experience. But what happened was, she went to drama school in London, and then she wanted to move right away to LA. Though she was from New York, she wanted to, you know, kind of get her career rolling. Mm-hmm. And of course, she she had a plan, which was that she wouldn't have to work as a waitress because she was so good at accents and she was so interested in vocal sounds and stuff that she would be the rage of the voiceover world. She would come make a tape and uh, you know become a voiceover star, and that would allow her enough of an income that uh, she wouldn't have to do the grunt work that a lot of people do in Hollywood while they're, before they're making a living as an actor. Hmm. Well, that was the plan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> plans, but, yep. <laughs> right. We all know about the best, the best laid plans. Oh, yes, yep. <laughs> so she tried to do that, but she found out when she moved here um, that uh, A, that it was a rather closed up world, which was not particularly anxious to have new people in it and mm-hmm. be that it was largely a boys club there were some women in it but but it they were they were few and they weren't doing nearly as much of the work as the men were uh relative to the population of of listeners or 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 viewers right. so she was she 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 had this idea that she was going to be you know uh thrust into this stardom and and found you know this bitter truth that it's that it's this that it's uh, it's a very exclusive and closed kind of world with people always looking over their shoulders to see who's who's coming up on them and trying to keep them out. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the the kind of um, that's what she knew about the voiceover world, uh, mm-hmm. and she knew a couple of people I think who were you know considered the big players in it. Um, but it's interesting when you know when we when we did it, um, we considered it 
really a story about family mm -hmm. uh, in which the voiceover world was kind of the set. It was, you know, just like when you see a Western that's about a family, you know, that was the world in which they lived, but it was yeah. really the story about the family. But I was shocked when it came out that there was this groundswell of people, zillions of people trying to get into the voiceover world, especially out here in California. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you, when, I, when I got into the voiceover world um, in New York, it seemed to me like it was a pretty closed shop and that every few years, every three or four years, there'd be an article in TV Guide, you know, the million dollar voices you never see, the people that you make a lot of money in television that you never see. And then for a month or so, there'd be people trying to get into voiceovers and then it would quiet down again. Mm -hmm. But by the time um, In a World came out, there was this enormous interest, millions of people wanting to get into voiceovers. So a lot of the people that, I, that became fans of the movie and that, that sought me out um, for one reason or another um, <laughs> was more because they were interested in, in, you know, in voiceovers and the world of voiceovers, which yeah. to me is not, you know, was, was barely a world to start off with. Um, it was mostly individuals, you know, trying to uh, keep themselves um, at the top of the game and then complaining about you know, not making enough money, even though they were making a lot more money than anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, it's funny because as it's changed, as it's become this kind of enormous, you, you, there's now thousands of people more doing it and the money they make is much less than it used to be. Yeah. But there's more people satisfied with that because there are people that are saying, well, you know, if I worked in a doctor's office, if I was a medical uh, assistant, or if I was a, I don't know, if I worked for an insurance company or if I worked, you know, I'd be making this much. So I'm able to make, you know, maybe a little more, maybe a little less than that, but I don't have to have a boss and it's that kind of thing. But it's not, you know, people aren't becoming um, millionaires like I did from it, you know, and like my, a lot of my contemporaries did. When I, when I started doing voiceovers, there was this group called the, the New York Eagles and they were all friends of mine. Hmm. Uh, who bought and flew their own airplanes. They wow. were voiceover eagles. Huh. And they, they would all have airplanes and they kept them out of Teterboro in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. They would make a date to all fly, for example, to Montauk and have lunch at uh, you know, a, a restaurant on the water in Montauk. It's a short flight, it's a you know, 40 minute flight. 35 minute flight or they, or they'd all go to Virginia somewhere and they'd eat together. They'd all fly there. It was, it was <laughs> the kind of business where if you now bear in mind, I've always, I was afraid of flying and was not very good at math. And so unlikely to become up, get a pilot's license, but right. uh, I could have afforded it at that time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was the, if you were one of the 200 or so guys or people, that were the chosen ones, you could live that way. And it was, uh, it was, you know, great. Well, it's become democratized. So now instead of there being, you know, a hundred people making, let's say over a half a million a year. Whew. Now there are 10,000 people making 30,000 a year. Yeah, it's kind of like breaking it all up amongst. Right, everybody. that's how it's changed. But I, but I remember, I remember it when it was really a few people. Um, but now it's become democratized. And 
there's so many more people making money from teaching classes and seminars and, you know, uh, let me teach you how to make a living in voiceovers and let me teach you how to, you know, most of which is, most of the things they have to teach are not worth listening to. And believe me, when you see, uh, forgive me for saying this, all my friends who teach, but if people are making sufficient money doing it, they're not teaching. People who have turned to teaching are people that are not making sufficient money doing it, or they're doing it for fun, but then they're not, they're not developed. They're not devoting a lot of time to teaching because it takes a lot of time to teach, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but the business has changed so vastly that a lot of people that were big players in the business are now forced to teach, to make a decent living or make any living. Yeah. So that's, that's a consequence of how things have changed. Um, I, I don't remember how I got, <laughs> I got to that. <laughs> well, um, well, it's it's funny you should say that because it seemed like there were, uh, like you were saying, how a lot of people were turning to teaching to increase oh, their yes, income. I, I, and, yeah, you know, like, I, and I do remember what I was going to say was that, that now there's this kind of hail fellow well met. We're all friends in this together. Uh, let's support each other. There's all these Facebook groups and groups on other platforms supporting each other. Um, that was not that way at all um, when I was coming in the, in the business um, because they did, people didn't want to share um, and also people weren't hawking uh, lessons, microphones, home studios, home studio technical uh, advice, all of which people sell now. Mm -hmm. so now there's a much, you know, now there's this welcoming thing. Welcome to this business. We'll teach you how to do well in the business. Um, that's all people just making money, <laughs> trying to make money right. from this, uh, from this thing. So it's, it's, it's really transformed in a, in a, in a way that's, uh, for me, having been in it so long, uh, disheartening to see, but there's always room for people that are good at something. Mm -hmm. so I would, my counsel, my very, uh, reductive counsel would be to those who are interested, work on getting good at it. Don't worry mm -hmm. about getting the right microphone. Don't worry about getting an agent. Don't worry about having your website be perfect. Worry about how do I get really good at this? That's what matters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the mo the movie itself in a world ends with you know Carol not only doing the um, doing the trailers for movies like the Amazon games and uh, but she's also teaching. Do you see, did uh, did you see when everything was finished? Um, and Sam is getting his Lifetime Achievement Award. Did you think that maybe that would be eventually be the direction in which he would go um, with with teaching, or would he just, when it was time for him to retire, he would just retire and stay out of it? Well, uh, I didn't ever, I didn't ever imagine things that far. But I, we did have there was a, there was another ending that was shot that we didn't use that she didn't wind up using. Really? Where, yeah, where as is often the case in films. Mm -hmm. um, where he shows up at her, at her studio where she teaches. Oh, wow. And don't forget, she has a kind of a different um, mission than he does. In the yeah. movie, she has, she has a mission where it's not just herself, but she wants to erase this kind of sexy baby voice that she finds, yep. um, you know, disrespectful, well, maybe not disrespectful, but what's the word? It's, 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 Degrading. You know, degrading to women that women have to do or they or they maybe they don't have to do it but they they think they make themselves saleable or they think they make themselves palatable by by 
adopting this voice. So she has she has a kind of a mission in life, which is to have women kind of be who they are and stand up for themselves and not feel that they have to be, they have to act out this role of being uh, subservient or being, you know, uh, less harsh, um, mm -hmm. you know, that they can be free to be who they are. Um, Sam is really just interested in himself and his own glorification, although he begins to realize uh, a little late in the game that he also has reason to take pride in his daughters. Mm -hmm. That it's not just himself. You know, after all, he, he actually competes with his daughter in the movie because yeah. he finds anybody taking away his glory if they don't, if they haven't been, uh, you know, uh, unlike Gustav, who he kind of agrees to pass the torch to. Mm -hmm. They don't have his approval. He doesn't want anybody succeeding. Mm. Well, then he, he kind of comes to realize that he should have had that same view about his, his children, his daughters. But he's yeah. forced to come to that realization by his hot girlfriend who yep. has to leave Jenny. him. <laughs> right, if, she, if, he, if he doesn't you know, act like a, like a decent person. But mm -hmm. in the course of being forced, just like me, being forced to change his view of something, he gets enlightened. You know, he doesn't do it yep. willingly. He, he, he is ultimately enlightened by it. But I never thought about what would happen to him uh, if he would wind up teaching or not. I think he would, I think, you know, more likely he would retire and, uh, you know, start playing golf and pinochle and poker and, you know, start re regaling all of his friends with stories of how great he was, more likely. Nice, nice. One of the things that, uh, that we were talking about before about how, you know, like a lot of people seem to turn to teaching in order to create that second income. There's also the other means of, of people looking to kind of make their own breaks and that's writing. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that and how that's going along? Yes, sure. Um, this is a project I've been, <laughs> I've been working on uh, for a long time. Um, I originally wrote it as a feature um, and it's a story uh, which was inspired by the true story of a friend of mine, a close friend of mine from college, uh, who became very famous uh, and beloved in the world of maps, rare maps, mm. particularly early maps of the Americas. Uh, and he was a kind of larger than life character mm -hmm. who was well known in that world, that kind of rarefied world of rich collectors. Now we're talking about maps that were printed usually uh, in the 16, in the, in the, in the 15 and 1600s, sometimes earlier, that came out of mm -hmm. atlases or books that are rare and that are worth, you know, I'd say typically between 50 and maybe $200,000 for one of these maps. They're extremely expensive. Wow. And people collect them and the people that collect them are understandably very wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, and institutions collect them, like libraries have collections of these maps. And there became a trade in these maps. That is, people started selling them to private individuals. Um, so my friend uh, became well-known in this world. Um, now, the story uh, that I wrote takes a great degree of liberty with, uh, with him and his character. So there's a lot of things that I invented that are not true to the real person. Right. But um, he, th this, in real life, this, this, this guy um, 
was much beloved because he had a kind of an unbelievable understanding of the history of maps and wrote two books, kind of seminal books on the history of maps, and also could look at different editions and just tell you from looking at them, uh, oh, this is before they changed this line and this happened. And uh, he was a kind of also very uh, lovable, big um, uh, kind of um, warm guy with a very patrician style, but also warm and friendly. Mm -hmm. And he was like a character that everybody knew. Uh, after about 20 years at the top of this field, he was caught stealing from the Beinecke Library, which is the rare book library at Yale, mm -hmm. uh, and eventually uh, admitted to having stolen many millions of dollars worth of maps. He's actually the most prolific uh, map thief in history. Wow. Um, in the meantime, uh, he had surrounded himself with a bunch of people, friends, often people very bright and talented, but for one reason or another, whose lives had not turned out too well. Mm -hmm. and he took it upon himself to be a kind of a, a role model, a kind of a, almost a kind of a rescuer to convince these people that life was a winnable proposition, sometimes helping them financially, sometimes helping them with advice, sometimes just being um, a, uh, an example of somebody who was able to turn something that he loved into something that made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, he bought a compound up in Maine of several houses uh, and tried to kind of reform this town in Maine and make it into kind of a beautiful tourist destination. And initially people in Maine really liked it because he brought tourist money into the town, but he started telling people in the town like kind of how to do things and they wound up resenting him. And a lot of the money that he stole, he actually used in these in legal battles against people in the town uh, who wanted to do various things in the town. So he, and eventually when he was caught, he it wound up destroying his life and destroying the lives of a lot of other people because people had relied upon him and built their careers upon their dealings with him. And of course, if you buy stolen property, um, when it's revealed to have been stolen, you have to return it. And it doesn't matter which, you know, if you pay $400,000 for a map and then it actually belongs to somebody who was stolen from them, you have to return it and you don't get your money back. Hmm. You just lose your map. Yeah. That's the way it is with stolen property. Oh, wow. So he ruined a lot of people's lives in addition to his own. Mm -hmm. So, and he was a good friend of mine and he was very, how he kept this whole part of his life secret fascinated me. And people were so devoted to him, including this sort of cabal of friends that he had that was, that were kind of, you know, not really able to put their lives together, but they were so, they needed him so much that even once he admitted to having done this, many of them did not believe it, did wow. not accept it. So this story fascinated me. Yeah. So I wanted to write a movie about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, over this, I started in 2005. <laughs> Was that two or three yep. years ago? Uh, a few, a few. <laughs> so I started in 2005. Um, and then I pretty much finished it as a feature. Feature meaning the kind of film that you go see in a movie theater. Right. 
And then when I went, I have a manager here who's very savvy and has been very, a person I love and very close to and whose judgment I value. And when I discussed it with her, she said, listen, you know, if you sell this as a feature, you want to direct it yourself? I said, yes, I would, that's what I would do. I would want to, you know, I would want to direct it. She said, so you're going to spend at least two years raising the money for it. You're going to get it into Sundance if it turns out any good, you know, if it turns out good, maybe. And then, uh, you know, maybe you'll get to direct something else two years after that. So by the time this all happens, you're going to be 70 years old with the hot movie at Sundance. You really want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, you can't make any money between now and then because you're going to spend all your time, A, finishing writing this, B, getting the money for it, three, getting it into festivals, editing it, doing all that, and then f trying to find distribution for it. She said, if you try and adapt it for television, and if it's successful, mm -hmm. um, you will get paid for it all the way along. Mm. Um, you know, once you sell it, you immediately get paid, and then you can produce it and run it and be there all the time with it. So I thought, that's a good idea. But yeah. I have found, and actually the story was too big. You know, I wanted to tell, a significant part of the story that I wanted to tell was, I don't want to tell you too much about the story, but um, right. he goes to prison. Mm. I wanted to talk about what happened to him in prison, which also transforms him and what happens after he gets out of prison. And there's a long story. There's a lot to it. Yeah. So I thought, well, that, that suits itself well to a series. But I found that actually adopting it, adapting it into a series uh, is actually harder than I, than I knew. Mm -hmm. So that's where I am with it. So I, and I, I, I showed it as a feature in its feature form to a couple of big streaming outfits who uh, responded very positively to it. Um, and now that we are not working, I'm trying to actually finish my, the part that I want to finish um, of writing it and doing a, what's called a Bible for it. Mm -hmm. um, because in the last seven years until the, until the lockdown, uh, I've been so busy with acting parts here in California that I really haven't had time to work on it, but now I do. So uh, that's kind of how it's going with that. It's pretty amazing how this, how as as much of a as much of of a of as much of a tragedy that this whole you know quarantine has been for so many people. It's all you can do is try to find some sort of some something positive to hold on to it you know like or else we're all just gonna go you know just gonna go nuts just you know scraping the walls well, of our own listen, place. i mean the, the, you know it's funny a lot of my friend like a lot of several of my closest friends that i talked to there's one guy um who's a writer director uh craig zoller who i've done mm -hmm. three movies with we're going to do another one um uh, soon when this all ends um he and I, another close friend of mine who's a psychologist uh, another friend of mine who's a writer, a fiction writer, uh, you know, it, it hasn't actually changed our lives that much because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, when I'm acting, I go out, you know, you have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and be on the set at 6.30 or 7 and you, you're on there for 10, 11, 12 hours sometimes and then you come home. But when I'm not doing that, when I'm not on the set of something, I'm at home and I'm at home with my kids and my wife and, you know, occasionally we go out to eat but I'm not a big one for, um, you know, I sit in front of the computer and write and read things and stuff like that. And, 
Um, so it doesn't seem, I mean, it's a little different in that I would see people socially, but I was not a big one for going out to bars or for hanging out or for going to the beach or things like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it doesn't feel all that different to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it hasn't disrupted my life in the horrible way that it has some people's. And I'm lucky in that, um, you know, I can get by if I'm careful with my money, you know, if we are careful, my whole family, we're yeah. not, you know, we can go for a long while without having to make any more money, luckily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are not in that position, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, but I, you know, I remember a friend of mine saying, when this is over, there are three possibilities. Everybody's either going to turn into a monk, a hunk, or a drunk. This <laughs> one of the three. <laughs> so I'm trying to turn into a hunk. I've lost, uh, I've, I've lost 37 pounds since last October. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. which I'm very pleased about. And I have, mm-hmm. uh, now I have that last pesky 50 pounds to lose. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, we'll see. So I'm trying, you know, and I, and I exercise to keep my sanity and keep myself in, you know, reasonably good shape. And, and I'm trying to have fun with my kids and give them what I can, you know, what, since we're all in this together and my wife. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, also make use of the time to write and do other things that are important to me. So I'm trying to actually use the time. Um, you know, it's hard sometimes, um, but I'm trying, you know, and I, and I, I think, you know, instead of just saying, well, it's a time with nothing to do, you know, it's nice right. to make goals for yourself and try and try and accomplish them if you can in the time. It makes, it makes life, you know, if there's no external structure, if you have some internal structure, it makes life a lot more bearable, a lot more pleasant. That is true. Yeah. I, I was so, I was so thrilled that I was able to take the, take the extra time to, um, to narrate and edit and master and everything, uh, an audio book for myself. Mm-hmm. So getting that done and out there was a huge, huge accomplishment. That what I, was the I book? Was it's actually, um, it's, uh, called Ever Upward part two in the Excelsior journey. So it's part, it's, uh, the second part of my, um, Excelsior trilogy. Ah. And uh, so I had, you know, like I already had, uh, you know, the, the one for book one, um, my publisher gave me, gave me the go ahead to go ahead and do the, um, do the audio books because uh, he didn't have the audio rights. He just let me go, go ahead and hold on to those. So mm-hmm. I was able to record book one a few years ago, but uh, once all this happened, I just, I was just like, you know, it's, it's time. Let's just go ahead and just start doing it. And so I started doing it in about a month or so. I had the whole thing done and then um, another few weeks or so of the editing and that was done. So whole thing, you know, it was all finished, came out in June and I'm just thrilled that it's another thing that I can say that, you know, yes, it's part of my, part of my catalog. So um, that's great. Now, are these available? Can people can people buy these or download them or find them? Absolutely, you can find uh, you can find it all on Audible um, and and Amazon. Um, and they, it's called uh, the Excelsior Trilogy. Well, the that's uh, the first one is just called Excelsior, and then it says at the bottom part one in the Excelsior Journey, and uh-huh. then part two is called Ever Upward, um, and then part three, which I'm working on right now, is called uh, going to be called Greater Glory. And that one will also have its own audiobook once that book is all finished. I'm looking at like summer 2021 for that one. This one's, this one's a tougher nut to crack because this one is wrapping up the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but when I'm finished with the book that I'm working on right now for my client, uh, once that's done, then I want to jump in and get the audiobook for From Parts Unknown done. 
Uh, so that way, that's another thing that's that's out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like that's that's kind of like what I'm what I'm doing for myself is just like trying to get as many balls in the air as possible. Sure. Um, and uh, you know, try to spin as many plates. Would that be something that you would uh, would say as um, as a good as a good method for people that are trying to kind of like break into trying to create their own breaks? Would it, would that be something that they that uh, that they should do, or should they? Um, if someone were to come to you and like and ask ask for advice, what would you what would well, you say to them? Advice, advice on what you mean? I, I had like a, kind of kind of breaking into into performing, into voice acting, like things like that. Because I know you had said before that it's a very difficult. Um, it's a it's a much different world now than what you than what you were used to, and that they need to be prepared to be making a lot less, obviously. Um, but if there was something, if there's something that you can just kind of like distill into one thing that you would say, um, go ahead and you know f focus on that. Would it be just like what you said before, just focus on just being good, on getting good at it? Well, I th I I do think that doing exactly what you're talking about is very helpful. Uh, that is to create your own opportunities, to create things for yourself. Uh, because if you're just waiting for a phone call, it gets, it can be very lonely and very, you can be waiting a long time. A lot of my friends that wound up being directors and writers and writer directors, as well as actors started out like, for example, Lake, uh, just started out as actors, um, mm -hmm. who wanted to uh, also, if you know, Rob Corddry is another good example of that. Oh yeah. Uh, Ken Marino, um, mm -hmm. uh, um, many, many people that I know. Um, they wanted, they simply wanted to create, uh, material, or as they say now, content, um, yep. for themselves. So that's how they started doing other stuff. And it wound up, you know, being a big, uh, big, uh, plus that they were able to do that. So I would say a couple of things. I would say, um, you have to, it takes a great deal of commitment. That's just the way it is. Um, mm -hmm. so if you're, if you're not sure that it's something you want to do, you can try it out and see, but, um, it's going to be hard if you don't feel a strong sense of commitment to it, but I think yeah. it's great to create your own opportunities. And also it, it has, it has a number of advantages, not the least important of which is that it gets you to actually practice the craft. You know, you mm -hmm. learn more from doing it than you do from yeah. any teacher. And that includes everything. That includes voice acting. It includes recording audiobooks. It includes um, acting uh, in front of people in the theater. It includes doing anything, movies. You know, even if you if you take your friends, when this time of this <laughs> this period we're living in is over, you, one of your friends has a camera, or one of your friends has a has a has a little tripod on which you can place an iPhone. Um, make your own movies. You'll you'll you will a find it very interesting because what's what you'll learn about how movies are actually made and um, you get much better at it, even from yeah. just doing it on your own. Um, so I would by all means um, suggest that. And the other thing I would say that people don't sometimes think of is, and this sounds very obvious is I would, I would do what I would do if I wanted to learn anything. So if I wanted mm -hmm. to learn to play the guitar, like I can play the guitar, I would listen to guitarists that I like, you know, who are the guitarists that I like? Well, when I was starting out, you know, I, I liked Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and to some extent, Jimmy Page and Johnny Winter. And so I listened to them, 
And in the beginning, I tried to emulate them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is a normal progression in, this, in the development of style. Yeah. Um, you don't want to just emulate them. You want to ultimately cobble something together that is a, that is a kind of a melange of stuff that you've, that you've gotten from other people and stuff that is your own. And it sort of coalesces into something that is you. Yeah. But I would listen. I would look at a movie, like if I wanted to be an actor, I would look at whoever I thought was a great actor. You know, I like, for, like, I like, for example, I look at Philip Seymour Hoffman mm -hmm. in um, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, yeah. Then I look at him in um, something where he does something completely different, like Capote oh. or like, um, oh, God, I can't think of the name of the film that he made with Tom Hanks, uh, where he plays a, a, a CIA agent. The hell is the name of that film? Oh, uh, was it Catch Me If You Can? No, it's no. not. No, it wasn't that. It what was, is this? Uh, hold, hold on just a second. I'll tell you in a sec. Okay. All right. I'm looking at his IMDb page. Okay. So look at what he does in uh, Doubt mm -hmm. or... Um, even in Boogie Nights, even Boogie Nights, great yeah. example, total yeah. different kind of a role. So, mm -hmm. and just and then I, I, he's like my favorite act, contemporary actor. He's not contemporary anymore, but well, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, and versatile, after, yeah, not just versatile, great in everything. Yeah, he's, in everything he does, he's completely different, but he's great. He's great at mm -hmm. you know, okay. What was the name of that movie? Hold on. I'm looking here at his. I don't see it. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Anyway. That's okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and just ask yourself, okay, what is he doing that's so great? Why is it mm -hmm. so what what he does? Why is he so good? What is so good about what he does? And likewise, voice acting. Uh, mm -hmm. if, you know, forget about like you know. I can act in my pajamas, and I, I don't don't have any boss. Listen, listen to some stuff, and ask yourself who's really good, and what mm -hmm. about them is really good. Yeah, and learn that way. Um, you know, and and that's how I would learn to do anything. Yeah. By, by seeing who's great, you know, how I learned to write. Read great writers and see what's great about them. Mm -hmm. And then ask yourself, well, what can, I, what can I adapt to my own work from what they do? It doesn't mean I have to copy them, but what can I learn? What's, what's a good lesson? Yeah. And so, uh, so where, can, uh, where can my listeners find you, you know, in the wonderful world of social media? Uh, only on Facebook. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a big <laughs> social media guy. Yeah. Um, only on Facebook. Uh, I have, I, you know, I, uh, I have some presence on other things, but it's from other people. It's not from me. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so well, this is, this has been, uh, this has been just a real treat, you know, having you here. It's been something that I really hope that, um, that 
all of our listeners have been able to take and, and run with. I hope they feel just as inspired to continue along with, like you said, making, your own, making their own breaks um, as I've been. And I really hope that, uh, that, this, that uh, this entire uh, discussion of your own Excelsior journey um, has really has moved in, uh, a lot of people to continue on with theirs and reach their own goals and figure out what it is that they believe is what will, what will ultimately define them. It has been just, uh, just a wonderful treat just ha uh, having you here. And it's been something that I really hope that uh, all my listeners are able to get out of it as much as I have. Thank you, George. I just want to say one more thing, if I can, before we close. Absolutely. When I was a kid, um, yeah. it said Excelsior. Yes. On the, uh, I think it was the AFL-CIO logo, the American mm -hmm. Federation of Labor. And yeah. it said the dig Excelsior, meaning the dignity of labor. In other words, there is dignity in working towards something. I think that's a good message. <laughs> that is. Just to go ahead and put the, uh, the ultimate stamp on, on this week's episode, for Fred Melamed, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>